I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. And you know, for the next few months, you may notice something that's slightly different. You may not, but you may hear some ambient sounds, etc., that aren't really normal for our setup. And that's because we're now on the road. We're doing another project uh, called Backroad Wanders. And what we're doing is we're exploring, on this one, we're exploring the Gold Rush Trails and ghost towns between British Columbia and the Yukon. And it's going to be quite the adventure for us as we take our four-wheel drive Jeep, only the Jeep, and explore these areas. And we're going to be filming and recording throughout, and we'll be producing a series when we're finished on it. And if you'd like to follow us on this adventure, which is is really neat, the website is backroadwanders.org. And you can just go there, and we'll be posting from time to time as as well. We'll be posting on Facebook. But So that's what's happening with us. The studio is set up differently. Um, I'm in my recording portion of the studio. Elizabeth is in the producer portion of the studio. And they're separated in this case. Here, I'll I'll demonstrate with my communication system to the producer's studio. Uh, That part on Brad Barker, can you give me the details on that again? The earthquake in Ecuador in April. And... This year, he joined a local motorcycle club in Ecuador and helped them distribute supplies. And then he's planning on doing another rundown, and he's asking for people to help by donating money or products, goods, it says, and then uh, and also to if you want to ride down and um, help distribute it. Okay, thanks. Okay, so that's the sound of our um, communication system for the studio. See, when I'm in the actual recording studio, I need a way to communicate with Elizabeth, who is outside of the studio. So we use the radio, which is really going from the Jeep to the tent. But anyway, that's a long story. So as you heard, we're going to talk with Brad Barker, who heads up the website, theRideOfMyLife.net, and Brad is doing a relief effort, which we're going to talk about. And he also has a, a great website there with some some catchy videos that you'll want to see after you hear this. We're also going to speak with, on this episode, Mary McGee, who is an off-road racer since, well, since motocross started in North America. Let me just say that. She's 79 years old, and she's still riding. You're going to love this story because it's going to make you believe that you can ride into your golden years. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. Hi, I'm Sam Manico. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Brian Field. Justin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed Mark. Glenn Hickstead. Woody from Woody's Wheelworks. Bennett Smith. Gregory Frey. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiff Nikos. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tass. Zoe Cannon. Nathan Millwall. Walter Colbert. Crystal Bayer-Vajic. Lawrence Harkin. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Susan Johnson. Larry Price. Robert Wicks. Spencer Conway. Ted Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Lisa. Nita. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, serving adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll need a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and will inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, and get this, it comes with a lifetime warranty. It's the pump we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Visit them at CyclePump.com. That's CyclePump.com. 
Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles, tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. Green Chili Adventure Gear is also the exclusive USA distributor for Outback Motor Tech, a Canadian company that specializes in high-quality protection for motorcycles. Visit them at www.greenchiliadv.com. Greenchiliadv.com. Mary McGee began racing cars way back in the 1950s. Yes, Mary is an old-timer. In fact, she's 79 years old now. And long before it was acceptable for women to be racing anything in the automotive sector, Mary was out kicking butt on the track. She started racing cars, and then she switched to motorcycle track racing. And it was moto legend and movie star Steve McQueen that told Mary to get off her street bike and get into motorcycle dirt racing. She took his advice, and she helped pave the way for all women into what at the time was a male-dominated sport. My name is Mary McGee. Um, I live in Gardnerville, Nevada. I was born in Juneau, Alaska. I am retired. Um, I am a motorcycle rider. Hello, is that Mary? This is Mary. Who is this? It's Jim Martin calling from Adventure Rider Radio. Hi, Jim Martin. How the heck are you? I'm very well. So where are you right now? I'm in Gardnerville, Nevada. It's a huge county. It only has about 45,000 people. We're near Carson City, Nevada, and which is just south of Reno. Mary, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Well, thank you very much. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you. I'll tell you, and likewise here too, I'm really stoked about talking to you today. I think you've got an an incredible story, and it spans quite a number of years. Now, are we allowed to talk about your age? Oh, yes. I'm 79. Uh, I started racing motorcycles in 1960. I actually started racing cars first in 1957. And then I added road racing motorcycles in 1960. You married a mechanic, and, and what I'm getting to here is, is you getting into motorcycles. He introduced you to, what, car racing and motorcycles? We went to the car races, the first car race, sports car race, Cal Club SCCA in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, and we just went out on the show, didn't even go out on a Saturday, which was practice day. I did not have a ride. And Sunday morning we went out and uh, George Rice, we started talking to George Rice and he said, Mary, do you want to drive my 300 SL? The Goldwing, worth, what, $5 million today? <laughs> and um, I said, you bet, sure. And so that's actually how I got started. It was um, a sedan class and a woman's class. And I spun out that I still won because I'm still all at the Mercedes Benz 300 SL. It's a fast motor. <laughs> but, and then you continued on. You continued doing uh, car racing. I did. I, I, I don't know why, but people kept asking me if I wanted to drive their race cars. 
So I couldn't say no, could I? <laughs> no. So I'm very fortunate in that way. Uh, I I just just lucky, 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 and I had some fantastic rides. Uh, Elvas, Jaguars, Ferraris. You know, two 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 and a half liter Ferrari Testarossa. Uh, it just went on and on. It was just and. In, in uh, 1960, actually in 1959, Vash, at a race, uh, Vashek Polak asked me to to drive his Porsche Spiders. He was Mr. Porsche from Czechoslovakia. And um, he had a deal with the factory. So we moved from Phoenix, Arizona to uh, Southern California uh, near Vashek's place. He was in Manhattan Beach. So we moved to Hermosa Beach, and I started racing his Porsche Spiders. Now, at a race in Santa Barbara, California, Goleta Field, uh, my my ex and uh, Barshak were down at the corner watching the races. Now, I forgot to tell you this. In Southern California at that time, there were many racetracks, several racetracks that ran the road racing motorcycles, and the sports cars on the same weekend. So they were watching the road racing bikes. Now, Vashek had been a 250 road racing champion in Czechoslovakia prior to WW2. And he said to to Don, was my husband's name, Mary should race the motorcycles, make even more smooth in the car. (laughs) (laughs) Bless his heart, my husband said, oh, that's a great idea. Now, he worked for Honda Motor Company. It wasn't quite American Honda Motor Company yet, I don't think. And so he came back. They came back and they told me their great idea that I should ride, I should race motorcycles. I said, what? But I said, well, okay, sure, why not? So it went on from there. And um, being a woman, I called AFM. AFM ran the road racing at the time. Wes Cooley Sr. was president at that time of AFM. And I called Wes and said that I would like to uh, maybe, you know, road race motorcycles. And he kind of was stunned for a moment. And then he said, I'm going to have to call you back. I said, oh, okay. He said, I got to have to talk to the guys because no one, no woman has ever asked to road race bikes before. So, he called back in about two hours, and he talked to John Vesco, John McLaughlin, Buddy Perry, you know, those the hot riders, big bike riders, mostly Norton Manx. And they said, that's a good idea. We've seen her in cars, uh, and she does a great job. However, we don't know what she would do on a bike, and it's more important to keep the line on a motorcycle than a car because the motorcycle has only got two wheels, and a car... You've got all this body work around you. So, uh, and he said I had to I had to wear leathers. So I uh, went to Ventura, California, Cal Leathers. They made me a pair of leathers in about four days. Went out to Willow Springs to try out, and there was a bunch of guys out there, and just rode around Willow Springs. I had never been on Willow Springs before. I had never been on a road racing bike before. It was a CB92, by the way. And um, it's a great bike, great bike. And so went around and round and round and with the guys and so forth. And about four, four thirty, Wes Cooley comes walking up and said, 
okay, everybody agrees. You can start racing with us. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I don't know if I was elated or or over overly anxious. I'm not sure. But so that's how that started. And I loved road racing. It's um, certainly different. I mean, the, the the mental part of it is is almost fatiguing. Uh, but it was great. The bike was great. Loved the bike and enjoyed every second of it. And then in 19, end of 1963, towards the end of 1963, um, the presidency of the AFM switched to Northern California. Every two years they changed off Southern California to Northern California on AFM. So it went up there. Now, the guy that took it over, I can't think of his name right now. He raced a 175cc, I think it was a Ducati or a Perilla. And I used to beat him. So now, here comes a letter to Wes Cooley Sr. Uh, down at Southern California that all women, now mind you, I was the only woman. I'm sure they were looking forward, however. All women have to ride a 50cc bike or a 75cc bike, and they can't move up higher to a larger bike unless they get X amount of points. Well, (laughs) now how did that hit me? (laughs) It was sort of like directed directly at me. I I was the only woman road racing. So I got a little, now I gotta backtrack a second. And now in 1963, earlier in 1963, now during, in sports car racing, you know, there were a lot of Hollywood people uh, that raced cars and that were friends of, of Hollywood people. A lot of people there. And they, I used to hear I should race, uh, get out, and they were all dirt bike riders. And I should come out to the desert with them. So now I don't remember what month it was, but uh, Steve, Steve McQueen, came over to me he said mary you have got to get off that pansy road racing bike of yours and come out to the desert i said "Ooh," and get dirty (laughs) so again my husband heard all this and he said oh what a great idea he said i can get a um a a 250 scrambler from honda because she still worked for american honda and i said well okay yeah, I'll try that. Why not? I hated the motorcycle. I loved the riding. So the very, it was two Sundays and uh, met a bunch of people uh, out in uh, Tehachapi. At that time, from where I lived in Hermosa Beach to out to the northern realms, north of the valley, there was no freeway. So we just had to go on Supposedly, and it was a long way actually. So, went out, started riding, and I actually loved it. For one thing, I finally was tired at the end of the day. <laughs> riding dirt bikes was a whole lot different than road racing bikes. Even though the road racing bikes are two days, practice, practice time trials, practice racing, it, it doesn't tax you that physically. So, and I really loved it. I didn't like the bike much, but I loved the riding. So now I was I was going out with the dirt bike on uh, on Sundays, every couple three Sundays, riding. 
And now here comes this letter that all women. So I just said, you know what? I kind of like these dirt bikes better. (laughs) And I I sold my motorcycle. They won. They won. I sold my bike. But in in a way they won, but in a way I was better off because I had a whole a whole better career in dirt bikes. I really did. I uh, I started racing in the desert. And I mostly fell off. I got to tell you that I'm I'm tall and thin, not that strong. I didn't do any of that. I didn't know anything about working out or 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 being physical. Um. The biggest thing I ever did in my youth was play softball. For one thing, in high school, the, the boys had the gym, and, and the girls couldn't go play basketball because the boys had the gym. This was a long time ago. <laughs> and uh, so I got strong, actually, by, by riding this 250 Honda Scrambler, CL72, in the desert. Um, did break a couple of bones, fell off a lot. Uh, but I, I didn't like, I didn't like being too far out in that desert. Some of the races were really long. Hare and Hound is 150 miles, was 150 miles. Hare Scrambles was, uh, about 35 miles. And I say, what was the other one called? I forget, but it was about 120 miles. So there were long races. So you're, uh, out there for quite a while. So now, um, in 1965, Wes Cooley Sr., who, if you remember, was head of AFM, called and said, I'm going to get your desert sleds ready. These were his exact words. Get your desert sleds ready. I'm going to put on a motocross. So a motocross, yeah, I've been in Europe. I've been to all the races, talked to all the promoters. I know exactly what to do, da 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 so I said, well, where and when? He said, oh, I don't have that yet, but I'll call everybody as soon as I know. So by golly, the first motocross was in the, about the first week of December in 1965, and there were 42 people that showed up. I had gotten rid of my Honda Scrambler, and so I rode my husband's uh, 500cc Triumph in that first motocross. The second motocross was February, West Senior put that on, rode that Triumph again. A little muddy, but it was good, and I didn't fall off. <laughs> um, now, the third motocross was put on by Edison Dye. Edison Dye had, had uh, been to Europe and watched all the races, and Husqvarna's were winning, and he found out there was no Husqvarna distributor in the United States. He made a deal uh, with Husqvarna to be the distributor, signed up Thurston Holman, and decided to put on a race at uh, the same place that, that Wes had had a race. They made, well, he and Wes Sr. made some sort of arrangements, of which I'm not privy to, of course. And he had he put on the third motocross, and he brought Thurston Holman over. So here's about 68 guys and me showed up at the third motor third motocross and Torsten Holman is there. Well, what an absolutely gorgeous rider. None of us had ever seen any riding like 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 he, the style. 
And it took him about three or four laps to lap everybody. Just so fast, so wow. fast. No, when you said uh, and so, so beautiful, let, let me just back up here. That that nineteen sixty five, yeah, sure. that first motocross, that was the first one like in North America then. Uh, unless unless there was one back east that I don't know about, that's right. Yeah, and the difference between the motor, motocross and what you were running before, what, what's the difference between those two for those who don't know? Oh, the desert? Desert, just out in the, out in the desert. Southern California is mostly all, mostly all desert. And Nevada, parts of Arizona, it's just desert, just miles and miles and miles of sagebrush. So there, there's a lot of different clubs, checkers, uh, for example, Simi Valley, and each club put on a race every month, and they set out. They set out the course on the desert. The desert was not closed then; it is now closed. Uh, so they could ride anywhere. You pick a spot. You can go set up a course. And um, so motocross is just motocross is 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 a. You start here and you end here, and it's usually about a, a mile or two long. You just find a place that somebody will rent you the land to use, and you set up a, a, a track. Um, and at that time, it was easy. You know, there, there were not so many houses, not so many people. So it was easier to, to get a, a, a motocross track going. And then it became more difficult because of too many people and houses, and they complained about the noise. Mm. Yeah. So anyway, that's really how motor, how motocross got started. Was I think Edison died bringing Torsta Holman over? It just went crazy. The next race, he brought over Joel Robert and I think Bank Domberg, and it was just wonderful. He then uh, what really brought it to the forefront. Edison died in 1967. Started the Inner Am. Interam started at Saddleback Park in Orange County, California, went to Denver, Colorado, went to Candlestick Park in San Francisco, went down to Santa Cruz in California, and the next, I think it was either Hopetown or Westlake Village was the next one, and then it ended back at Saddleback. And I rode that series. It was great fun. There were 10 Europeans that came over. You rode motocross for how long? Okay, um, I run motocross for years. In 1967, also these 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 years, these 60 years were very busy. In 1967, another thing happened. So I got to do another type of racing. My a friend of mine, Paul Collins, called me and said, "Did I want to go uh, race in in Baja? There's going to be a Baja race." And I said, "I don't know what it is, but sure, you bet." And it was going to be. I don't know how old you are. You might not even know what kind of car this is. A Datsun. They're known as Nissan now. Mm-hmm. Uh, a Datsun 510. And they put in seat belts and changed the tires. And that was it. We pre-ran. It was a Mexican 1000. Uh, we pre-ran uh, in, a, uh, in a in an old Toyota 4x4. Can you think of the name of it now? Um, and then... So the the race uh, that was the first Mexican 1000 in 1967, and it went on from there. 1969, they started the Baja 500 and added motorcycles, which I I rode the motorcycle. Uh, 
So I did both cars and motorcycles in the Mexican races. In the Baja races. How is it that you can transfer from, I mean, back to when you were saying about you were racing cars and you sort of transfer to motorcycles. There's such a huge difference in skills there. I just don't see how you can just go from one to the other. <laughs> well, you know, I never thought about it. I never thought about it. And bless his heart, uh, my ex always thought I could do anything. It would just be easy for me. It, I could do anything. Just go do it. So that's kind of the mindset I always had. And I don't know how I do it. I, I think maybe just because I like to doing it. I like doing it so much. I don't know. But it, sure, it's different. The lines, the lines are going to be in a road racing course. The lines are going to be about the same. Except on a motorcycle, you, you get to see exactly where you're putting your tire. So if you're going through a series of S's like at, at the Riverside Raceway, you can see exactly where you're putting your tire. So you, you actually can get better cornering abilities because in a car, you've got all these wheels and all this body work. But I did love cars. I do not want to say I did not like racing cars. It was great fun. They're so darn fast. <laughs> There was a, a period there in your life where you got away from bike racing. Let me see now. Yes. Now, um, so I think, let me tell you about the thing that, that I'm most proud of, I think, in the Baja racing. In 1975, uh, for Husqvarna on the 250, Husqvarna, the the course was 610 or 620 miles long, and I rode that solo. Wow. Big undertaking, and I did it uh, according to, to some magazine articles because I didn't know where I was or how I finished. They said I had passed 17 uh, two-man teams. Wow. So that was pretty neat. <laughs> um, now, so then I continued motocross racing and then also did the Baja racing because they were just in uh, twice a year, November and first first part of November and the first part of June. So I continued motocross racing. A lot of tracks at the time in Southern California and, and in Northern California, just a lot of tracks. So it was great fun. And um, I had a lot of support from my husband and my nephew and my, my son used to go along with us. My son was uh, about two, two and a half and my nephew was 10 and we went on the interim circuit, you know, Orange County, Denver, et cetera, et cetera. And, and we, had, we had a lot of fun, stayed in motels with swimming pools, so the kids loved it. And how many other female riders were you riding against? Uh, none. I was the only one. Still the only woman racing motorcycles. <laughs> still, still the only one. It was me, me and the guys. Yep. Wow, that, that just must have been bizarre, or was it normal for you? I didn't think much about it. You know, sometimes I'd get a little embarrassed. I think that's the word I want. I'm not sure if that's the right one, but I'll use it. A little embarrassed because I was the only woman there, and I get I used to get stared at. That's that's what embarrassed me. People would stare at me, and I was never an introverted person, but I was quite shy. So that. That was a little bothersome, but I don't think anybody ever said anything bad about me that I know about. If they did, well, 
I wouldn't have cared anyway. I would have cared, but I, I wouldn't have stopped racing. But you um, weren't an also ran. You were doing well. I did pretty well. You know, for a tall, skinny gal, I did pretty well. I was no youngster. I didn't get started when I was six or 12, you know, so it was all right. It was good. And I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot. I'm just lucky. Lucky I got all the right people help. Uh, Husqvarna came along and offered me these rides for Baja. And I just, it just couldn't, it couldn't have been happier. Now, in 1970, or 71, I can't remember, we moved to Ketchum, Idaho. Um, that's just Sun Valley. We moved to Ketchum, Idaho. So I, I was racing motocross in uh, Idaho. Um, went to Washougal in Washington. Um, went to something in Utah and um, in Nevada. And then I would, I would travel down to, to um, Hispanic headquarters in San Diego, California, and then uh, twice a year, and then I'd go pre-running for the 500 or the 1,000, and then um, go back home, and then go back down for the race. Quite a schedule. Oh, <laughs> and I had to grocery shop, too, and cook and cook. <laughs> So you were still looking after the kids. Your husband was working. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yes. Yes. And was racing back was, in that day where you mentioned you didn't know about physical fitness, getting fit and for that sort of thing. Was there still practice? Was there all the, you know, the week caught up with like everybody would be nowadays if they were racing? Or did you just sort of show up for the race and that's when you got on the bike? Pretty much you showed up at the race. Now, the physical fitness part uh, came when... Um, Rolf Dublin, world champion Rolf Dublin, came to work for Husqvarna in San Diego. And, and Rolf started having rider schools, riders training schools. And that's really when many of us learned how to, um, to, how to train, what was really important to train for uh, a motorcycle race, which is mostly aerobics and mostly riding. So now when I got to, when we got to, to Idaho, I ride a lot because it was just all open. You know, I could just leave the house and go down on a, uh, 300 yards, turn right at the railroad tracks, go about maybe a quarter of a mile, and there's this huge open space to ride. Set up a track. So I got to ride a lot in Idaho more than I did living in Southern California because it's a long, if you wanted to go out to the desert before a desert race, you'd have to have some camping facilities or be willing to sleep out in the desert and, and, and ride Saturday, which many, many guys did and still do. And then um, race Sunday. I never did any of that. I just showed up Sunday. That's just incredible. And, and there was a period there where you got out of riding. Yes, yes. Um, I got divorced, and um, I now had to support my son, so a nephew, and so I there was no no jobs, certainly that paid any money, and I was not the waitress material. That's pretty much all it was up there. 
So I had to move back to Southern California to get a job. And I did. I worked for Motorcyclist Magazine. I was a sales rep. Sold space. And you did that for how long? Well, I worked for the magazines for quite a while. I can't think of can't think of years the years go by, and, and I couldn't. I didn't ride anymore because a I didn't have the support. Um, I had to work, you know, every day just about take care of the kids. So there was just no no time or room. Now I did take my my son was riding. I took him out places to ride, Indian dunes and so forth. And if I had a, a, mag, a bike from the magazine, then I rode. But I didn't do any racing or anything. So then, and um, my last motorcycle race actually was at the 1975 uh, Baja 500 that I did solo. That was the last motorcycle race until uh, 2000. 2000. Um, friends of mine that I used to ride with down in Southern California had moved up to Reno. Uh, Tom and Catherine Mudo. Tom was number two rider out in the desert. So he called and said, you got to come up here and, and race motorcycles. I've been doing old timers up here. It's great fun. And now we're doing vintage stuff and you'd be perfect at it. And I didn't even know what that was. But vintage means that the, the motorcycle oldest a motorcycle can the newest a motorcycle can be is 1974 so it's 1974 and earlier for vintage motocross so and um i was ready to leave hermosa uh, my son was in uh europe racing at the time he raced speedway and so i moved up here and um i rode uh friends tom's bike and friends of tom met a lot of people uh, were doing vintage racing and they all had 250s. I was used to a 250 Husky. And so I would ride their bikes until I could find one of my own. And then I, I found a 74 250 Husqvarna to buy. And that's what I've been racing. And are you still racing now? Well, not right now. My, currently, I'm still rehabbing some injuries. And um, my motorcycle is in the shop. Hang on but a second. So you're 79 will, years old. You're you're yes. you're 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 convalescing from some injuries, but your bike's in the shop. This like, obviously the biking isn't over for you. <laughs> no, it isn't. No, it really isn't. And I, I love the way you answered right there. I just love <laughs> that because I think for everyone listening right now, that's that's a huge inspiration. Well, good. I hope so because you know motorcycling is such great fun. Whether you're riding out in the on, on the road, you're just going uh, to see a friend, the grocery store, you're riding through two or three states, you're riding cross country in Africa, or you're racing dirt bikes, or you're road racing bikes. It's all so marvelous and so much fun. And if people would just start, go get a motorcycle, or borrow one from a friend, and just ride a little bit, make sure you have all the gear on, and if they love it, they should stick with it. And I don't, I don't know of anybody who has ever said, I tried motorcycles and didn't like it. 
Do you know anybody? Well, no. I, I think you have to you have to give it time because there's, there's always that learning phase in there when you first start anything where it seems so awkward and you have so much trouble concentrating and everything. I think what you have to do is you have to give it beyond that. You have to wait till you get comfortable on it. That's when the real joy comes in. Well, you know, you go to the you go nowadays. You get to go to a training school, uh, MSF, uh, Motorcycle Safety Foundation School, of which I just did three years ago in Carson City at the college, um, which was a new experience for me, being a person who just got on something, never having done anything before, and and went racing or riding. I think I think sometimes people overthink things. You know, here's a motorcycle, fine. Here's how you ride it. This is the brake clutch. Make sure you have the helmet, gloves, and, and some sort of ankle protection on. And, and here's the, here's, here's the brakes, the clutch, here's the throttle, here's how you do it, here's the brake, here's how you do this. It doesn't take that much training to just go a little ways and see if you like it. Get out on the dirt someplace. So if you fall, you're not going to get any bruises. Um, and just try it. And, and don't overthink things. I think too many people overthink things. Oh, I can't do this. I've never done it. Well, the heck with that. Just give it a try. Just give it a try because motorcycling is is just great fun. And you know another thing good about motorcycles is that every motorcycle rider is a friend. If you're out on the if you're out if you're out going cross country, every gas station you stop at, every restaurant you stop to eat, if there's another motorcycle rider there, well, you're instantly friends. It's a, it's a great, great community. Mary, where do you go from here? Are you going to be racing for a number of years still? Oh, I have no idea. I don't have that in my mind about when I'm going to stop. I think, I think you all recognize a stopping point um, when, it, when it happens. I'm not going to over, overdo it. What I'm going to do, what I'm going to do next, I can tell you, is um, on the 11th or 12th, I'm driving up to... Roy Washington. Uh, there's a club in out of Seattle called the Dirty Girls Club. Obviously, it's a dirt riding club, and they're having a riders dirt riding school in Roy Washington. So I'm going to go up and um, help out with that, some, do some training, help do, help with some training, and then they'll be there four days, and then I'll go over to uh, Plain, Washington, which is near Leavenworth, and that's where the this year's Tech rally is. So, and I I think I'm speaking Saturday at 3 o'clock or something. Just talking about motorcycles, racing. Sort of like we're doing. You don't sound 79. You have a lot of energy and youth in your voice, and, and I, and I got to think that has something to do with motorcycling. <laughs> oh, I think so. I think, what would I have been doing? I, I do think about this. What the heck would I have done if I hadn't have been out racing uh, motorcycles, riding motorcycles? What if, well, well, TV, I guess. I don't know. Drinking? I don't drink. Well, you have to have a beer with Mexican food. I'm a firm believer of that. <laughs> uh, and um, that's it, really. I mean, you have to have something, I think, in your life besides work and and cooking and shopping and TV and reading. I, I am a big reader. 
don't do much TV. But I, it's true. I mean, I think I really believe that you were right. It's because of motorcycling. And I think if you look at motorcycle riders right now, go out and talk to motorcycle riders, whatever kind of riding they're doing, and ask their age, you'd be surprised about how much younger they are than maybe your cousin or your aunt appears to be that doesn't ride. Yeah, I think that's a that's a very good point. Mary, it was a pleasure meeting you. Jim, the pleasure was all mine. I thank you so much for having me on your program. I think it's marvelous. You guys do a great job. Every motorcycle rider should be very grateful. And I do appreciate you calling. And that was Mary McGee. If you want to find out more about her, you can follow her on Facebook. You can either search for her, or you might want to go to the show notes and, uh, and click on the link that will take you right to her Facebook page. Aerostitch says the best way to ride more is to make riding your easiest and fastest way to get from A to B. No matter what kind of running around you're doing or whether long distance riding or adventure riding, that's what they're after. And for 33 years, Aerostitch has been designing, making, and selling the equipment that makes our riding anywhere in all weather easier, safer, more comfortable, more fun. And I'm telling you, I'm a convert on this as well. It didn't take much to push me because I, I, I've been a big fan of Aerostitch gear for a long time. But I've been riding with the Darien jacket and the 81 pants, like I've told you already, and I am so impressed. They do make it so that it's just much easier. They, like I've said before, the zippers on the side of the pants, I know other pants have them, but the, the simplicity, the fit, the whole bit of this gear is amazing. You've got to look at it. Visit their website, aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. I'm riding with it now. I'm telling you, coming from me, um, it's great gear. It really is. I know you're not going to be disappointed. If you go and purchase from them using that that forward slash ARR, you're going to get 10% off your first purchase or if you're a repeat customer, free shipping on your next order. By the way, the 2016 catalog is out. If you don't have it, well, you're missing out. Simple as that. Download it for free off their website or order it. You pay a small fee and I think you get it back on, your, on the next order that you do or if you're doing an order from that one, it might be deducted from that itself. Aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. And of course, tell me you heard him here on Adventure Rider Radio. Have you noticed how many people lately are riding with giant loop bags? I mean, they're everywhere, everywhere you turn. People who are really serious about riding are using giant loop bags. And why? you got to ask yourself, well, it doesn't happen by accident, and it certainly doesn't happen if the bags are low quality. It's because they make tough, durable, sensible bags that stay on your motorcycle. Simple as that. So if you've got a bike, you want to equip it with soft luggage, which is amazing for if you're doing a lot of dirt or if you're any sort of real rough, hardcore riding, or you want to go light and go fast, like Giant Loop says, giantloopmoto.com. Use the promo code ARR. It'll get you uh, free shipping in the United States. 
And while you're on their website, it'd be worth your while to check out their new fuel bladder. They've got a fuel bladder there, which is basically a fabric bag that you can use as a backup for fuel. And I'll tell you, anybody that has a smaller tank than a KLR or maybe the the big R1200 GS Adventure, if you've got a smaller tank than that, you'll want some sort of alternative capacity for fuel. This thing does it. I'm telling you, this is a really nice piece and they've won an award for it. So visit them, giantloopmoto.com. And of course, always let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. In April of 2016, the people of Ecuador were struck by a 7.8 magnitude earthquake, and they're still in desperate need of aid. Now, this is where our next interview comes in. Brad Barker runs a website called therideofmylife.net, and uh, he posts videos on the website, and it's a lot of great stuff. But what he's doing here now is he's doing a humanitarian effort. He's using his popularity in the Internet, producing these videos as a way to, to raise awareness, to raise funds and to raise equipment needed to help the people of Ecuador. Brad, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. I'm so stoked to be here. You have no idea. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's start off by talking about your website called therideofmylife.net. Well, let's see. Um, we, uh, I got a little bit of a background in media. I've done a bunch of TV shows on uh, the documentary side of things on just with Discovery, History, other networks. And... Uh, Long ago, somebody thrust the long way around in my hands, and I watched that DVD and found out what binge-watching was uh, by watching uh, Ewan and Charlie live all of our collective dreams and um, understanding a little bit about what it takes to put a television show together. Uh, I thought, wow, I can do that. Um, I wonder if there's a market out there for a a fast-talking Yankee to cruise around the world on a BMW. I bet I could convince somebody to let me go do that. So I uh, gave that a shot, set up uh, a trip to go do something significant because nobody wants to watch Brad ride around his driveway. And, um, and so I did the highest road in the world in the Himalayas as uh, my, my starting point. That was the first video that we ever did. And I had a, an amazing group of folks in India. Uh, Sonali Tomar showed me India and the Himalayas and a little bit about how to hold a camera and keep it in focus. And uh, we went to the highest road in the world on a Royal Enfield. And I put it up on YouTube because I figured that was a nice, safe environment to see if anybody would watch it. And uh, lo and behold, I think we've got nearly 100,000 people have watched that little seven-minute trip. And um, it seemed to be uh, sort of like the Forrest Gump technique of failing your way towards success. And now we have over a million minutes viewed on YouTube and uh, Google really likes us. So we're going to keep going until people stop watching it. <laughs> well, Brad, you, you made a huge jump there from finding out about Long Way Round to doing um, a road in India. You weren't riding before that? Well, if we wind the clock back, uh, I was lucky enough to have uh, my father had a, a motorcycle dealership just outside of Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. And uh, I got my first motorcycle at seven years old. It was a, a Honda Elsinore MR50. And uh, I had a little chip on my shoulder riding around like a, a mini hooligan, uh, running around with my buddies with uh, 
mini bikes that looked like junky things with lawnmower engines. And I had this well, beautiful- Well, 50cc, you should be yeah, proud of that, right? I was, oh, you have no idea. It, <laughs> it, it, it was, it was, it was cool. You know, this evil Knievel was all the rage and, you know, we're in the middle of the seventies and, and I had a really cool bike with a clutch and that was my differentiator. If it had a clutch, it was a motorcycle. If it was, any, if it didn't, then you had a, you had a mini bike that should probably be contributing to the artificial reef off the coast of the Jersey shore. But I had a real blast terrorizing the equestrian trails around Valley Forge Park. And, you know, that's a huge historical area, beautiful area. And um, the funny thing is uh, my mom is also quite an equestrian and motorcycle rider. And she used to race enduro powder puff on a bull taco. So it was kind of in the DNA. So when you saw Long Way Round, you'd already been riding then. And you did you go for lessons? Like, were you into off-road riding or, or dirt riding, uh, adventure riding, as we call it? Well, here's here's the thing. I, I mentioned that chip on my shoulder, and that seems to be a bit of a common thread here, unfortunately. But uh, when I started this um, ride of my life thing, I, uh, I was introduced to Kurt Forget and Martha Forget of Black Dog Cycle Works. And Black Dog makes... Um, they're very famous for their skid plate. It's uh, what they say, body armor for your bike. And, um, and Kurt took an interest in this uh, ride of my life thing I was doing. And he was our first supporter, the first guy that ever said, okay, we're going we're gonna to give this guy a little bit more than a, uh, a quick overview and see what the heck uh, snake oil he's selling. And, and over New Year's, uh, I spent time with he and Martha and they outfitted my brand new GS and put all, everything I needed on it because I didn't know. And and I was under the impression that nothing could be more useless off-road than a 600-pound boxer engine. And and no one could convince me otherwise because, you know, I've had a bike since I was seven and I know everything. And 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 Kurt let me ramble and uh, was somewhat tolerant and then said, okay, there's before you kill yourself, I need to introduce you to a guy named Jim Hyde. And uh, I, of course, didn't know who Jim was and had never heard of Rawhide Adventures. And, um, and Kurt said, okay, look, if you're going to go skiing or snowboarding, and uh, the first thing you do is go to ski school, don't you? So you don't get hurt. Well, you need to go to Rawhide and learn how to ride this thing because it's not, it's not what you think. And of course, I showed up at Rawhide on day one and thought that I should be teaching the course because, because I'm awesome. And, uh, and I learned very quickly that I'm the opposite of awesome on one of these things. And you have to take a completely different approach on a, a bike of this size, this weight, and with this capability. And, and, uh, and I had to unlearn everything that I thought I knew about trail riding and, and how to manipulate that bike as a five foot nine, 195 pound kid, uh, you know, pretending to play with toys again like I used to, uh, I had to completely reboot my thinking. So you started the rideofmylife.net, but that's not really what you do for a living, is it? Well, it, it's kind of funny. Um, I, uh, I, I, again, I've done a fair amount with uh, broadcast television and uh, I, I've done a fair amount of uh, security consulting for our government and other governments uh, kind of in a in a counterterrorism uh, humanitarian aid capacity, and um, and I've been doing that for gosh since since 2005, and um, motorcycles have have always been something that I that I relied on when I would come back from doing 
some of this crazy stuff that I'm sure you can imagine. We've seen some some good days and bad days, and the bad days are bad. Uh, and I would come home from these deployments and and do what I referred to as helmet time, where I would disappear for three hours or three days and just, you know, I'm, I'm sure everybody who listens to this Adventure Rider radio podcast understands what helmet time is and how you can get very introverted on your bike. And that's one of the reasons that people people go ride on long distances. It's so it's so empowering to spend that time in the saddle and uh, and just riding. And and I really use that as a coping mechanism and um, trying to figure out how to how to make my vacation my vocation. And that's what uh, that's what the ride of my life is slowly morphing into. It's it's actually uh, it's actually becoming a bit of a thing. I've I've got a, an Emmy award winning film crew that. Uh, follows me around the planet as I tell stories from my point of view from the seat of a bike. Well, that's pretty, uh, that's a sweet job. And I'm sure a lot of people listening to this will want the same job and want to go and do exactly what you're doing. But unfortunately, we can't all do this. How do you end up making money at it, though? Well, it's, um, I call it the Forrest Gump business model. I thought that, of course, everybody would pay me trillions of dollars to hear what I have to say about riding around the world. But turns out that... uh, they don't, uh, but we're pretty good at telling stories. So we have some some supporters and some sponsors and some clients that aren't necessarily interested in uh, my exact point of view of of my adventure travel, which we put on YouTube for free. Uh, but they like the way we film and tell their stories. So we have some pretty big companies um, like Climb. Climb is a big supporter of the ride of my life and, uh, and they help us out. And then they ask us to contribute to their content. So if you go to Climb's website or their Facebook page or their YouTube channel, uh, you, you'll see a lot of our work. And I'm not in it necessarily. Sometimes I am, but um, I tend to talk too much for them. So, uh, so they, they like our crew. They like the way we produce and, and, uh, and, and video their story. And rigid industries. They make really awesome lighting systems for off-road vehicles, including motorcycles. So again, if you go to their social properties and look at their, their media, that's, that's a lot of our handiwork. So, so the ride of my life is just a project underneath this production company that I have called Epic Nomad. So really the ride of my life is supported by our sponsors uh, by virtue of them just being our clients. You're putting together a humanitarian effort um, for, I believe, this year. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So, again, so Epic Nomad is the production company that that has a project, among many, called The Ride of My Life, which is my semi-autobiographical midlife crisis on camera. <laughs> and uh, I was working with a, a BMW uh, motorcycle club in Quito, Ecuador, called The Brosters. And uh, I had plans to go film with Court Rand from Freedom Motorcycle Adventures in Ecuador and, uh, and Motolumbia, which is another motorcycle adventure tour company out of uh, Colombia, and, and make really cool videos for them for their website. So I had this nice little plan to go do uh, four countries, Peru, Ecuador, uh, Colombia, and one other yet to be named. And so we were making some plans to go do that in September and Oct- or October of this year. And it was, all, it was all nice and logistically planned out rather nicely. And then the earthquake uh, hit uh, about five days ago. And, um, you know, it was no small earthquake, massive amount of devastation and 
part of the attraction to filming the Brosters is number one, it's a BMW centric club in a on the equator, South America, a beautiful adventure riding area. And what's interesting about this group, the Brosters, is they do uh, what they term moto philanthropy, where they raise awareness for various things that they're doing and do this outreach and altruistic uh, charity work of, of all different kinds. Um, very similar to Ron Grace's Lost for a Reason. I don't know if you know Ron or what, what mm -hmm. he does, but uh, you know what Ron does, he cruises around on, on his bikes and raises awareness for the impoverished elements of the, the Navajo Nation here in America. And these guys... Uh, down in Quito are doing similar things. And then the earthquake hit. I got a phone call from them saying, hey, remember that thing that we were going to film in several months uh, uh, and we were going to tell you about these things that we do? Well, let's show you. Can you get down to Ecuador like tomorrow? So I canceled a whole bunch of stuff and jumped on a plane and uh, was greeted at the airport by... 45 BMW motorcycles and representatives from the Minister of Interior of Ecuador. And, um, and I could not have had uh, better access, uh, better government support and better support from uh, the BMW motorcycle riding community than, than through the Brosters. So we, uh, we went all on bikes to a place called uh, Canoa and uh, Pedernales, which is a cities along the coast about uh, about five hours away from Quito and saw the results of the, of the earthquake firsthand and we filmed it all. Uh, and, and what we're trying to do is put that video out on YouTube and Facebook and show people what a true motorcycle club can do to make a very significant difference um, outside of what the government can do, outside of what NGOs, non-governmental organizations, mutual aid agencies, uh, Red Cross, uh, you know, a lot of these big, big groups will go in and do some stuff. But there's always gaps in between what the government can do and what these uncoordinated uh, agencies can do. Uh, and, and these guys are Ecuadorians. They speak the language. They're from the region. Uh, they can very surgically identify these gaps and fill them by, by raising funds and bringing relief supplies to, to the afflicted. And, and I just wanted to give their voice a little bit of a broader audience by virtue of our cameras. And so, so that's what we're doing. We've got a, a capital raise campaign that's on our website and on our Facebook page. And uh, we're supported by a 501c3 called Coalition of Hope. And uh, I've worked with them at um, Katrina and in Haiti and in Hurricane Sandy uh, in New York. So we know these guys. We know they're, we know they're not going to be funny with the money, which is always a concern. And uh, the beautiful thing is that um, Jim Hyde from Rawhide Adventures does a Dakar uh, motorcycle tour where you can get on a really cool bike and follow the Dakar racers down in Bolivia, Chile, and Argentina. And he does that every year. And because he does that tour, he knows the logistics companies that move all the big heavy equipment around. And uh, one such uh, company has told uh, our group that they will donate as many shipping containers as we can fill with relief supplies from the US and they will bring them from Long Beach to Ecuador for free. So wow. that's huge. Mm -hmm. So what we want to do is make a whole bunch of noise and tell everybody to ship some relief supplies. I mean, anything critical stuff is 
you know, soap, toothpaste, toothbrushes, uh, towels, blankets, cots, sleeping bags, tarps. I mean, everybody's more or less homeless because uh, they've had three earthquakes in a 30-day period. So even though the, the buildings aren't crumbling down like they were, they, they've stopped the actual collapsing. But uh, the children and a lot of the adults are scared to walk in the buildings because you can't predict an earthquake. And there's just no confidence that the walls won't come down in the future. So everybody's living outside. Describe what it looks like. Well, <clears throat> it looks like any war movie you've ever seen. It, you know, go watch Saving Private Ryan. You know, it looks like Normandy. Uh, it looks like uh, uncoordinated demolition. And, um, and then surrounded by makeshift camps of tarps and tents and people just living under stuff. And there's a couple of um, uh, temporary housing structures that have been donated by um, the faith-based community and non-governmental organizations and, and, and other groups, but, but nowhere near what's needed. And um, you know, having worked you know, dozens of, of mass casualty events in my adult life, um, it's kind of like the same movie. You know, you, you, no matter how many times you watch Titanic, that boat never makes it home. So uh, this is kind of a, a sad thing that happens at any one of these uh, mass casualty events globally. There's um, uncoordinated efforts. I mean, a lot of these NGOs don't talk to each other. So you've got, you've got chaos in the leadership. And then the host nation is impoverished and dysfunctional in a lot of ways. So, so they can't help. And then you've got... Um, a lot of the volunteer organizations and faith-based organizations that are staffed with mostly volunteers. And unfortunately with the volunteer world, those folks are, although they're incredibly uh, well-minded and, and, and I love their heart and that they're giving us their time, but a lot of them are untrained. And in many cases they become part of the problem rather than part of the solution. I've seen many volunteers become casualties or have become mentally dysfunctional because it's just it's just really horrifying with, with what's happening there and they just can't they can't cope they don't have the tools to to cope with that type of distress so um it, it can become they become really ugly really fast so um being able to use our big mouth and our access to to the adventure riding community which is um people who are really, really good at going camping. <laughs> and uh, we, have, we have means to get relief supplies down there for free. Uh, we have uh, Freedom Motorcycle Adventures of Ecuador have donated us dozens of motorcycles uh, so that we can deliver relief supplies. Uh, we've got free shipping. We've got the government that's going to waive any tariffs or logistical red tape at the border as, uh, as our relief supplies come in. So it, in all the years I've been doing humanitarian aid or relief in any capacity, I've never seen an opportunity to help others with a lower barrier of entry than this one. So that's why I want to scream from the rooftops what's happening down there. And uh, when the CNN and Fox News cameras leave the zone, uh, all of the awareness of what's going on down there stops. And then almost instantly, like a light switch, the donations stop. So... Um, trying to tell people that the donations are still needed, these people are still in, uh, in trouble. And just because it's not on the, the mainstream media right now doesn't mean that there isn't, there isn't a, a nightmare down there that the, the, the folks in, in these areas can't wake up from. And, uh, 
It's easy to forget about, isn't it? I mean, there, there's so many things on the news, and that's what the news is. They cover, you know, one catastrophe, and they move on to the next one, and it seems like the one you heard about a little while ago is, is gone, and you just it, it does leave the, the mind, and certainly um, it doesn't leave the minds of those people affected. Do you know how many people are affected by the earthquake? Well, it's there's no real exact number because uh, the Ecuadorian government doesn't have a true census like we do. And, and the area that, that we have identified, we are in essence adopting a city because uh, you can't boil the ocean. You, know, that you, you can't fix Ecuador from an earthquake. So what we're doing is we're adopting a small city called La Chorera and it's 400 families. And that city is a subsistence fishing village that is 100% decimated. It's all gone. And so rather than saying, yay, the adventure motorcycle community is going to save Ecuador, let's go. And we have our red cape on. We're not attempting to do that because that's too lofty a goal. We will fail. So we're adopting this small city so that we can be laser focused, totally pinpoint what we're doing. We can measure our results. We can quantify the good that we're doing. And we can report back to the adventure riding community how awesome they are because look at what you did. And if people want to check our work, they can watch our video series and see what we've done. Or if they want to come down, we need volunteers. So you're looking to, to raise supplies. You're basically looking for anything that would be everyday supplies. You mentioned the soap and, and all the things that I guess that we, we would need. They're going to send that to where to begin with? Okay, so the, the, just real quick, soap is critical. And I know it sounds kind of silly. Wow, they need soap. Soap is the first way that you can cut off the spread of cholera and hepatitis because when people living in squalor, uh, you know, humans, <laughs> humans collected together without water, power, and sewer, uh, we get filthy pretty quick. And uh, there's germs and the disease can run rampant and, and wipe out entire regions. That's what happened in Haiti. And just simple education of how to wash your hands and how to stay clean, how to treat your water, that can save lives. So very simple things like, like that are, are awesome. And we want all of that stuff shipped to Rawhide Adventures in Castaic, California. And you can just Google Rawhide or go to rawhide-offroad.com and look at their address and ship them stuff. And there's a huge shipping container and many, many trucks over there at Rawhide. And we're going to use these shipping containers as more or less an hourglass. As those things fill up, we're shipping them to Ecuador. And it takes about a week to get from Long Beach down to Manta, which is the closest port uh, to uh, Pedernales, which is the, the big city that, uh, that got hit. Um, and La Chorera is just, just south of that. So we'd like to do multiple trips. Um, but right now we're, we're just going to do this one shipping container at a time. And that's where to send stuff. You know, you can go to the 99 cent store and spend a hundred bucks and make a big, big difference, uh, by. But, but do, do you have a list of things that you're after? Or Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, you don't have to give us a list. I'm just wondering, is the list available somewhere yeah. for them? Because I think with this sort of thing, people can get confused. I mean, you don't want to be sending winter jackets and things like this. No, they probably couldn't use that. They'd turn it into a pillow. Uh, but the list of what is needed is on our website at theridofmylife.net. And then there is another 
list at Rawhide's website. There's a list on Coalition of Hope. and They all say the same thing. So if you um, go to the rideofmylife.net, you can see the, my little video there that talks about um, my trip and I interview some people. And I, uh, again, the, the Minister of Interior, Jose Serrano, gave me his helicopter for a couple of days to, to take some real, it was kind of funny. I had a drone with me and I thought I was pretty cool with my drone and I was going to take some aerial stuff. And, um, and he was like, Oh no, no, that's, that's fine. You, you take mine. And I looked over and over and there's a helicopter. <laughs> you, you know, and, and when was the last time that happened where somebody just gave you the helicopter to use for a week? And we- I'm, I'm telling you, and I, I have a reputation for being a bit of a talker, but now I have a film crew that follows me and, Everything I say is, is not exaggeration. It's true. Watch the stuff. You'll see it. It's like, again, it's the Forrest Gump technique. It, you never believe that this stuff happens. And uh, there's just an overt amount of gifting and generosity that's happening out of the adventure motorcycle community. And, uh, and that's awesome. But, and I want to throw some more, some more kindling on that fire. Uh, so any way we can get the word out to get uh, cash donations um, donated to Coalition of Hope through the website or stuff sent to Rawhide through the website, it's all 100% tax write-off and all that stuff, full 501c3 with you know all the auditing in place and whatnot. It's totally legit. And, and this is the first time ever that I've ever seen the motorcycle community coming together in a, in a chorus of generosity and, and helping people they've never met before. And and I think that that's, that's awesome. Okay, we're going to have those links in our show notes so people can go and, and find all the links for all the different things you've mentioned here so far. But now you were talking about riders wanting to go down and help. Sure. So again, we've got, um, we're using these shipping containers as an hourglass. So I don't have the exact day that we're going because I don't want to go down there without anything. You know, I, I, I think we run the risk of uh, looking like Geraldo Rivera the day he tried to open Al Capone's safe and they're, you know, <laughs> it's a live broadcast and then they find this little Mountain Dew can. It's like, wait, that's a little anticlimactic. So we're going to wait until that thing is full. So as soon as we can get that shipping container at Rawhide filled up with relief supplies, one week later, it's going to be down in Ecuador. And once we get to say three quarters full, I'm going to start going crazy with social media on who wants to come. And again, Court Rand from Freedom uh, Motorcycle Adventures in Quito has you know, 20, 30 motorcycles completely earmarked for this cause. So you get to come down, you get to ride some of the most amazing roads on the planet. I mean, the Andes, come on. So you, and, and Quito is at 11,000 feet. So you're running some amazing twisties in alpine conditions and having a blast doing it for a good cause. And then at the end of the day, you are in the earthquake zone where we'll have the relief supplies on flatbeds and we, we orderly uh, distribute them through the city elders so that they are managing their people. We are managing the distribution and we did it before. It's all on our video that's on our website and, and it's, it's desperation and it's feel good moments and it's amazing riding all wrapped up into one amazing trip. And we've got really awesome help from the government there. So this doesn't cost anything. And there are some people here that could, could really use that. So I would love to challenge people on what they would pay for one of these amazing adventures 
and, and come ride with us for next to nothing and use that money that they had earmarked and budgeted for their amazing adventure and, and go get some relief supplies or, or give us your money <laughs> and let us spend it. Is this going to cost someone something? It's only going to cost them the plane ticket because we've got hotels sponsoring our relief efforts and we've got bikes for you down there. So there's really nothing to spend money on. Wow. Are you delivering the supplies with the bikes or are you sending a truck as well? No, the truck. Okay. So the, the bikes are at Freedom Motorcycles headquarters, which is in Quito, which is where the big international airport is. So we're going to fly from wherever into Quito and there uh, Freedom is going to give us our bikes. And then we ride to the coast from 11,000 feet down to sea level, which is where the trouble is. And our relief supplies are coming by ship. So that's obviously at the coast. And the relief supplies will be there for us. So we're not loading up bikes with, you know, tons and tons of stuff. We're, the bikes will be empty except for, except for, you know, your pack. So it's real nimble riding. And uh, it's real riding, you know, it's, it's unbelievable riding. I, I want to underscore that. And, and then the relief supplies are waiting for us there. And then we, as the folks that uh, contributed, uh, get a chance to distribute the material to the, the people that need it. And there is no experience in the human condition that is more empowering and more fulfilling than helping save a life. There just isn't. Brad, it sounds great. Thank you very much for telling us about it. Thank you for giving me a forum to, to share it. It's, uh, it's an amazingly unique opportunity. It's an awesome purpose. And there's amazing people that are so fun to ride with that are, that are orbiting this project. And the invitation is, is out to anybody. And that was Brad Barker from the rideofmylife.net. Now, if you want to help out with this and you want to get involved, or maybe you want to go yourself as well and help distribute these, these products and things that they're taking down, get a hold of him at his website, therideofmylife.net. And of course, that link will be in our show notes. This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, serving adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll need a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and will inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, and get this, it comes with a lifetime warranty. It's the pump we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Visit them at CyclePump.com. That's CyclePump.com. <laughs> Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles, tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. Green Chili Adventure Gear is also the exclusive USA distributor for Outback Motor Tech, a Canadian company that specializes in high-quality protection for motorcycles. Visit them at www.greenchiliadv.com. Greenchiliadv.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. And of course, we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. I want to give a special thanks to our co-producer, Elizabeth Martin. And uh, I guess that wraps it up for this week. 
Hey, if you like what we're doing here and you'd like to keep the show coming to you for free, consider dropping by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com and clicking on the donation button. Anything more than $10 is going to get you a gift sent back from us in the mail. Our way of saying thanks. Well, now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Ride safe. I'm Jim Martin. See you next week. Hi, everybody. This is Ted Simon. Uh, I'm on Adventure Rider Radio. I'm very happy to be here. I'm at jupitalia.com, and uh, I wrote Jupiter's Travels. (laughs) 